Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a custom-oriented value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, we are in for a very special treat today. Uh, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. The person we're going to be speaking to is none other than Dr. Eric Topol. Dr. Topol is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He's a professor of molecular genomics medicine. He's executive vice president of Scripps Research. He has published over 1,200 peer-reviewed articles, and his principal focus has been on the genomic and digital tools to individualize medicine. He's been cited over 230,000 times. Just an amazing record there. In 2016, Dr. Topol was awarded a $207 million grant from the NIH. That, to my understanding, is the single largest grant ever awarded by the NIH. And that was to lead a significant part of the Precision Medicine All of Us initiative. That's a prospective research program that's enrolling 1 million participants in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Topol is also the principal investigator for a flagship $35 million NIH grant to promote innovation in medicine. Prior to coming to Scripps in 2007, Dr. Topol was the chair of the cardiovascular department at the Cleveland Clinic, a department he led to become the number one heart center in the country. He was also the founder of a new medical school uh, there at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, the Learner Medical School. He uh, has been voted as the number one most influential physician leader in the U.S. by modern healthcare. In addition to this just tremendous academic and clinical and leadership track record, uh, Dr. Topol has also published two bestseller books on the future of medicine. One is called The Creative Destruction of Medicine, and the other is The Patient Will See You Now. His most recent book, his third book, is called Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. This just came out in 2019. And uh, we're going to spend a good part of this interview, in fact, most of the interview, talking about his most recent book, uh, Deep Medicine. Uh, before we bring Dr. Topol on, I just want to say that I've been listening to him and reading his work for years. And it, it's just how he thinks and how he assimilates information is is remarkable. It's unique. And I would say it's formidable. I don't know anyone who has his breadth and depth of perspective from being a renowned practicing cardiologist to having a, one of the most distinguished academic research careers uh, internationally recognized over and over again for decades. He's a leader with an amazing track record and portfolio of success and his understanding and ability to assimilate uh, digital and technologic advances in healthcare is really second to none. Uh, but most important, I think you're going to hear this throughout the interview, is his humanitarianism. Again, this combination is something I've, I've never, ever come across, I've never heard or read uh, before. I, I'm just so grateful that he's in healthcare today. He's been a a, a real teacher uh, from a distance and a real mentor from a distance for me, although we've never spoken or met before. I've just learned so much from him over the years. It's just a, just such a special, special pleasure and privilege to have a few moments of his time. And so without further ado, why don't we go into the podcast uh, interview that we just recorded earlier today? 
So Erica, I want to begin by asking you about the problem itself. What, you know, why do we need deep medicine? In, in the uh, first chapters or so of your book on deep medicine, you talk about the problem of shallow medicine. So what is shallow medicine and why is this a problem for the public? Well, most people will recognize shallow medicine quite readily, even though they might not have called it that. And that's basically very little time between patients and their doctors, uh, very little information that's actually culled together for that limited visit, very little actual eye-to-eye, face-to-face contact because of keyboards. And uh, we have, as a result, uh, a lot of burnout, the worst ever in the history of the medical profession and uh, a doubling of medical errors that occurs as a result of that burnout. So shallow medicine is not a very um, positive picture, as you can see. And, you know, in, the, in your book, Deep Medicine, you, through the chapters, you march through the different applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning and do just a, it, it was the most uh, exquisite explanation uh, that I've ever come across talking about what all of this is about, the neural networks and, and all of that. It, it almost, though, I will say it, it, was, it was just so engaging to read. And at the same time, it felt like uh, drinking from a fire hose. I couldn't stop. I literally read the book in one sitting. Um, and, and I will say that I've been thinking about it quite a bit since. You, you talk about the application to behavioral health and risk stratification and genomics and navigation and, and a whole bunch of other topics. I guess my my question, you know, as as someone who is involved in is speaking to an audience of people who are trying to translate your translational research into into actual healthcare delivery, what do you think is the most proximal promise of of AI that can be uh, adapted by hospital systems and healthcare systems? Well, thanks for your feedback, Zeev. I think the earliest sign that the implementation is ongoing is in image interpretation and specifically for radiologists. So um, there, uh, the ability to uh, forego missing things, about 30% of scans have a missing item, which of course sometimes can be quite important. And so that rate can get down to low single digits, perhaps never to zero, but training with hundreds of thousands of scans uh, of a particular type, whether it's a magnetic resonance imaging, CT scan, plain X-ray, I mean, basically whatever type of scan, the accuracy rate is going up quite a bit. The the speed is, uh, of course, transformed. And this is helping radiologists. Uh, The question, of course, is um, how is this going to ultimately affect that discipline? Yeah, I actually think it's a very positive impact, and we're not going to see any reduction of radiologists, but rather some reconfiguration of things they're doing, and hopefully not the squeeze, the expectation that radiologists will look at review more films. And that's because, of course, the issue is that this gift of time, as in this example, could be ruined uh, because we not only need the expert oversight, We don't want to trust any algorithm interpretation of a scan, which could be a serious, even a potentially life-threatening matter for a patient. We don't want to leave that just to an algorithm. And 
we also would like to encourage more direct patient communication between radiologists and, and, and uh, the patients having the scans as well as more prudent use of scans because there's a lot of ionizing radiation, particularly in the United States. And we need to reduce that and reduce the waste uh, and the inappropriate use of medical imaging. Mm -hmm. Okay. So imaging is, is one area and you, you talk about imaging also from an ophthalmologic uh, perspective, the retina, you talk about it from a dermatologic perspective, you talk about it uh, in terms of um, pathologic uh, pathology slides. Right. Uh, so there are a number of specialties where, where image recognition can be done so much better. Uh, at least that's where the, the science is going at, at a much lower cost. And, and you talk about, again, the fact that it's not just the machine, but it's the machine that enables uh, the experts to actually really do much more, more effectively, safer, at a lower cost, which is, I, I think, going to change at least three or four different specialties, if not more, in the near future. And by near, it sounds to me, do you think it's a three to five year or faster than that? Well, it depends on where you are in the world. It's happening you know, pretty quickly in China. Um, and uh, certainly, it's happening more uh, in the UK than the US right now. Um, but, you know, it's harder to get things to change in the US because we have a very seriously fragmented um, multi-payer health system. Um, but you, across every discipline in healthcare, there will be significant changes. Ultimately, whether that's in a few years or whether that's going to take longer, this all is an inevitable path that we're on. Now, speaking to the UK, so you published uh, a report, the Topol Review, preparing the healthcare workforce to deliver the digital future. It's, it's a report that was published on behalf of the UK, the National Health Service. You, you just, it just came out this February. I would urge folks to get it. It, it was, you, you talked about it on page 206 of your book, but it's, it's on, online. You can download it. And in that, you talk about the impact of AI, uh, of the digital future. I haven't had a chance to read through this thoroughly, but I got the sense that there was going to be a lot more directed consumer healthcare and there's good and bad with that, I think, in terms of the potential disintermediating uh, providers and yet at the same time freeing them up as well to do higher level work. So is there a message from that report that you would share with hospital system uh, executives? Well, thanks again, Z, for mentioning the report. Uh, it was um, put out early in 2019, and it was a real privilege to work with the NHS and a multi disciplinary team, uh, about 50 different people, leading experts from uh, the UK throughout, you know, not only medicine and nursing and uh, economists, ethicists, uh, uh, you know, uh, roboticists, and uh, you name it. We had a great crew. And the main message was that we could get the gift of time. That interestingly, when the UK decided to have this review for the NHS and plan for the workforce, there was uh, a notable interest to see whether or not AI could reduce the workforce, you know, get rid of jobs. But we actually came out with a different um, and I guess somewhat unexpected uh, output from the report. And that was, no, no, we're not going to be getting rid of jobs. <clears throat> we might see slowing of the growth curve, which is exponential and 
in the NH in, in the UK, healthcare is a leading source of jobs, just like in the US now. But the main thing is that we could use this remarkable, perhaps unparalleled uh, opportunity for generations to come to turn inward and get this efficiency, productivity, workflow improvement, this gift of time and get it back to the patient doctor relationship. So that was the, the dominant patient centered uh, outgrowth of the, of the whole work that we did uh, for the NHS. It's, it's so fascinating, you know, just to pick up on that issue of efficiency, you know, up till now, we've been in this era of re-engineering. I actually talk about this in my book, and, and I think we need to switch to an era of reframing healthcare. And what, what you're talking about is healthcare delivered so differently that it, it just takes a leap in efficiency by bringing the patient into it and enabling them with the, the technology that's available. You talk about, you know, the monitoring that's going to be available, the uh, AI-enabled data or, or reporting to people what's going on uh, with themselves, the, the, the home monitoring, the hospital at home. Uh, all of this is changing the efficiency in a way that, you know, in the past we've tried using Six Sigma and Lean Toyota production system. Uh, this just, to me, and I'm, I'm curious as to what you think, I mean, this just takes a, a leapfrog past that. Yeah, I think what is really important is there's a kind of bimodal path of uh, decompression. So clinicians, um, not just doctors, but across the board of clinicians, that includes uh, nurses, pharmacists, all the different types of clinicians, physical therapists, uh, they are overwhelmed with um, the patient care responsibilities. Uh, notably, that word care, they don't have even a chance to execute care, to provide care, because they're so time squeezed. So, the, the two paths here, two modes, one is to outsource to machines, which can do a lot to help. We talked about images. We talked about, you know, getting rid of keyboards from AI speech recognition and machine learning and uh, basically teeing up all the data so it doesn't take so much time to go through a, a patient's electronic record. So that's one path, one part of this. The other outsourcing to patients that you just touched on that is, a lot of patients, not all, want more charge, and we can have them generate their own data through things like sensors or having complete access, ideally control, and even ownership of their health and medical data so that that can be put into a virtual medical coach. And a lot of the things that are done today that require a doctor's oversight could actually be shunted and given to the charge of patients who are eager to take things, more things on. And indeed, many of the uh, routine common things that necessitate today a visit to a doctor, things like a urinary tract infection or an ear infection of a child, uh, a skin rash, these are things that can be done doctorless. And that was another way to provide at the time when patients and doctors do come together, that it's for important matters, and that there's plenty of time to bond, to have the presence and establish the trust, and basically reestablish that vital relationship. I definitely don't want this point to be lost. In the past, I think when people talk about, and I'm kind of curious, 
your perspective on this or, or perception. I hear people talking about it, you know, healthcare executives talking about digital and everyone wants digital. You know, the question is, why do they want it? Is it just keeping up? Is it sort of a competitive thing? And I, what I hear for, from you when I've heard in your TED Talks, what I've read in your book is, you know, you're saying, look, this is, this is the reason for this is it, it radically improves efficiency. It improves effectiveness and quality and safety. Um, it, it dramatically lowers the cost. It, it's much more convenient at the point of care, which is where, you know, people are living their lives, not in the offices or the hospitals. And it's also from a humanistic perspective, it will elevate the profession of medicine. It, it will, you use the phrase back to the future, it will take us, you know, to that time when the provider and the patient could sit together, could talk, could touch appropriately. And, and it, it really enhances the professionalism. I just want to say that is such a refreshing take and, and, and reason for implementing and deploying digital health and AI. And I, I just don't hear that sort of understanding. So I just want to really personally thank you for, for making that so abundantly clear in, in your writings. Well, thank you. But I, I guess the big catch here, not to um, miss it, is that this is the ideal scenario of how we can take AI and get the far-reaching objective of the human um, bond, the human touch, the, the human factor that's been lost to bring back this care in healthcare. But it won't happen by accident. It's going to require, first of all, a lot of things we've discussed require, you know, prospective validation studies, trials, and we're very short on those. You know, there's very limited. There's only one randomized trial on you know, colonoscopy that was performed in China to show how the machine vision picks up a lot of polyps that, that gastroenterologists uh, would miss. But a lot of the other things we discussed are, uh, there's a lot of retrospective studies, but the final validation isn't there. The second hole in the story, I, I actually think the first one is going to get resolved over time, but the second one is a more challenging one. Um, and that is, if we don't rise up for patients and say we have to have the time, the, the ability to provide true care, the humanistic essence of medicine, if we don't rally, then what we have today are managers and administrators who just want to squeeze more, see more patients, read more scans and slides and, and whatnot. And that's what's gotten us into this mess. That is the, the business of healthcare. We have to turn, as you say, the clock backward to get to the point where the priority were, was the patients and not um, this squeeze, because it could actually get worse from all this productivity if we don't um, really get behind um, the, the uh, uh, assurance of turning inward. That's really vital. And, uh, um, I, you know, I, I tried to paint the ideal scenario if we are activists and stand up for patients, which hasn't been the case, you know, in terms of, uh, at scale for doctors over the course of many decades. There's so much we could talk about it. And, and you are, uh, I just want to share with the folks that are listening, if you know anything of Dr. Topol's uh, history uh, and track record. Uh, he's this, these aren't just words. He he's lived this um, in, in profound ways. And 
uh, being uh, an activist on behalf of people and patients uh, and taking on some some big giants in, in this domain. And I don't want to get into it now because I have so many other questions I want to ask you. One question I have, I, I do want to touch upon two points, which are of profound interest, I think, to everyone. Uh, one is the use of AI and risk stratification. And, and again, I, I work in population health much of my time. And one of the big challenges is is, you know, who do you, you, you can't care manage everyone. You, you can't outreach to everyone, at least not at this moment in time. There are resources that are required. So you have to pick and choose who are the patients you will proactively go out and, 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 you know, and say, listen, you need to come in. And, um, and whether it be the so-called rising risk with, with chronic conditions, the patients who are at risk of, of having a, 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 an immediate bad outcome, uh, mortality, uh, and so on. And so, uh, rehospitalizations, uh, uh, people who are at higher risk for ED visits. These are real problems that we need to solve today. And so I'm curious, uh, where are we? Is the technology there? And again, I think your point is so well taken that a lot of this is hype. And you make it very clear in, in your book on deep medicine that you really need to do the research. You, you, you can't do that shoddily. Uh, this is real medicine and, and it has to be rigorous in, in, in its study and efficacy. So where are we with risk stratification? Is that something that, that hospital systems can find right now? Are there vendors out there? Are there tools out there that are, are ready to do this? Or is this a build that's going to take three, five, seven years? No, no. There's uh, already some 25 uh, uh, clear or approved FDA uh, deep learning algorithms. Predominantly, they're in radiology, but there's some in other specialties like ophthalmology, like you mentioned, Zeev. Um, you know, notably, uh, there's a system that would diagnose diabetic retinopathy without a doctor. That could be done by the receptionist in a primary care office, whereby the um, picture of the retina is taken by the receptionist and uh, a deep learning algorithm uh, makes the diagnosis uh, about the presence of diabetic retinopathy. So that right now, that's expensive. Ultimately, that'll be made into a smartphone story. Um, but you can see where we have lots of momentum that these are uh, particular uh, leading edge advances where in that image field that we, we discussed uh, at the outset, it's got the, the, you know, the, the main um, momentum speeches behind it. Uh, behind that even further is text, uh, that is, uh, so far, AI is not as good as humans in terms of reading t unstructured text, of course. And prediction, you know, that's another area that's very exciting, be able to predict events before they happen and when they will happen. And we're just starting to see some daylight in that. So, you know, there's this kind of major different areas. And, you know, one is way out in front. The others are lagging. Right. Do you think along these lines, do you think, and, and I'm asking you this, uh, it's almost like a consult, uh, do, should hospital systems be investing in this? Should they be partnering with uh, vendors or, or you know, researchers who are doing the re research in this? Or should we be sitting back and waiting for the front runners to create these, these tools uh, like the predictive analytics uh, uh, you know, people who will, will are more prone to to need ED visits or or show up in the ED or be hospitalized or readmitted or have a worsening uh, of their conditions. Is that something we should we should just wait uh, to happen, or should we be investing in it aggressively? 
I actually think being aggressive, um, so it's not happening by accident, uh, is the right way to go. That is, you know, for things that have clearly got validation. And, uh, you know, I think the only caveat here is anytime you use these algorithms uh, that are uh, cleared or approved by FDA, uh, and even if they've had, you know, prospective clinical trials, like the diabetic retinopathy system I mentioned, or the machine vision for colonoscopy. I mean, that's great. They've got, you know, really good backing evidence. But any algorithm in practice, we have to keep a tight surveillance. And the reason, of course, is it could, it's subject to malware. Uh, it's subject to, you know, security uh, breaches. Um, and it doesn't necessarily going to perform the same way as it did in the clinical trial um, or in the site. Uh, we've already seen AI vary from one center health system to another in terms of out outcomes. So that's why um, getting uh, used to this, not only to, to adopting a system, but also putting it under uh, scrutiny and surveillance of how well it's working in a particular venue. Uh, for a population that's invariably going to be different than the ones that have been uh, part of the testing and validation. So the sooner people and health systems start to get uh, experience, the better. Yeah. And you, and you talk about this in the book as well. But as you're talking right now, I'm thinking if I were going to begin to implement this work, it, it seems to me we need some new expertise here. You talk about the the bioinformaticist uh you talk about the the extra training or different training we're going to need. If I were thinking about getting into this as a hospital system, would I be looking for for these different folks, these different levels of expertise who really understand this? You again, you you go into some depth about this in the book that you really have to understand how to interpret this work and and how to deal with the technology. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's unquestionably that um, we should be taking an active stance here, that this is, uh, as far as I, you know, I've been a student of medicine for well over three decades. I've never seen anything like this. Um, everything moves more slowly than it should. Uh, but here we have, you know, perhaps uh, as good a shot to remedy many of the things that ail us in healthcare today. Um, is. And it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to require uh, not the, the, the idea, though, that you have to be a computer scientist. No, uh, you, but you'd like to be able to uh, find people with that expertise uh, to be able to collaborate with, uh, to be able to have, um, you know, input from. So in, in medical education today, it would be ideal that there's some uh, curriculum to support this work because doctors of the future are invariably going to be providing oversight for algorithms. Uh, it's going to be much more common than what we see today, of course. And the problem there is, again, changing a medical school curriculum or a training program activity is really hard. So we, we really do need to work on this. We also need to work on the kind of people who we select to be doctors because we don't really necessarily need brainiacs. We need people with the highest emotional intelligence, the ones who are, you know, really exquisite communicators, 
who exude empathy, who, who truly care about their fellow man. These are the people we should be working on selecting because some of the premium we paid for people just from pure intellectual capabilities, like their test scores, it may not be a great reflection, but that's what's used today, uh, and their grade point averages in college, they, that may not be nearly as important as their interpersonal skills, their ability to engender trust and make the human connection. Yeah, so well said, and I, it, it makes so much sense. One, I know our time is running out. Uh, one other application, there, there are quite a few I'd love to, to talk to you about and hear your thoughts, but you, you actually make this point very clear in your book that of all the applications, of all the conditions, the issue of behavioral health, the issue of depression, uh, the issue of suicide, and, and you, you pull those stats so well, it's unparalleled in our history, over 40 or nearly 45,000 suicides a year. And it's, it's you know, people in the prime of their lives, it's our adolescents, our future generations as well. You talk about the, the millions of people who suffer, hundreds of millions of people who are suffering at this moment with depression. It just seems to me that's another area where the application here of self-monitoring and, and self-reported data, uh, the apps, you, you name uh, many, many apps that are, whether it's dealing with loneliness or depression or anxiety, where are we with that? How ready, how prime time is that? And, and if you were advising a hospital system, would you say this is the thing to jump on or it needs a little bit more time in the oven? Yeah, well, a time in the oven, that's a good one, uh, Zeev. This one has got perhaps the greatest promise, but it's the least uh, in terms of what I'd call, you know, real validation. So what we're, what we're getting at here is that there's so many ways to track state of mind, uh, everything from uh, your speech, all the different qualities of speech, the uh, breathing pattern, um, you know, the uh, facial recognition, um, the way you strike a keyboard, a keyboard on your smartphone, uh, the, your communication, uh, your, your physical activity, no less things like sleep and heart rate and other vital signs. So there's just so many ways that we can get a handle objectively on state of mind. And as you know, we're not too good at, as a review in the book with predicting people who are potentially suicidal, no less in terms of managing depression. But there is a lot of excitement about this because now we have all these objective metrics. We don't know how many of them are needed to really capture uh, precisely the state of mind in any given individual. And they may not be the same uh, for all people, of course. The other thing that's in parallel, uh, especially noteworthy for mental health support, that's for really the diagnosis and tracking, but for support is the use of avatars because we've already learned surprisingly that people are much more readily trusting giving an avatar, they're disclosing their innermost secrets as compared to another human being, which is fascinating. We can exploit that by, and with the, the relative dearth of mental health professionals by relying at least to some extent on technology. So lots of things in the mental health space that are really encouraging, but they, they require a lot more work and proof. 
Yeah. You know, I was reading something reading recently in the last week or so that uh, there's at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, they're in their psychiatry department. They actually have a digital psychiatry division, something like that. And I was just so blown away by that, how smart that is, given how serious this, these sets of conditions are. As you were saying, there's just a, a profound a lack of capacity of psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers. We need this. Um, the, the, the impact in terms of human life is, is just profound and cost. I just thought that was just a smart idea to have someone and a division devoted just to this whole world of digital health and in behavioral medicine. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks. Eric, I, again, so many other questions to ask you. I think this work you're doing is, is so important. We're so lucky to have you in healthcare today. I, I do want to say, though, you know, there are a lot of smart people out there, but I, I don't know of many that have your breadth and your depth of both the technology and the science and the clinical part, as well as the leadership. And most importantly, the humanity. You, you started your book with a quote and you ended it with a quote by Aldous Huxley. And I'll read it for you here and for the audience. It, it says, by these means, we may hope to achieve not indeed a brave new world, no sort of perfectionist utopia, but the more modest and much more desirable objective, a genuinely human society. And I think for me, that, that quote captures what you're all about and just the the amount of brain power and heart power you bring to it. So I just can't thank you enough uh, for, for spending a few minutes with us. Well, Z, that's really kind to you. Uh, it really means a lot to me. So thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion and hope uh, it will resonate well with your listener. Great. Thanks again, Eric. Thank you. You take care, Z. Okay, you too. Bye-bye, Eric. Okay. Bye-bye now. Folks, you've just heard a, a brief, but I, I think just so powerfully impactful and important interview dialogue with Dr. Eric Topol. I just finished recording it a few minutes ago and still quite just taken with uh, who he is, what, what he's about. You know, at one point during the interview, I, I alluded to his character, maybe a number of times I alluded to it, but uh, he talked about us needing to really stand up and speak for patients. And he is speaking from experience, from doing it, not just talking about it earlier on in his career as a researcher. And again, a, a profoundly well-known, incredibly well-respected and distinguished researcher and academic. He, uh, he took on Big Pharma. And uh, because uh, one of the medications, the blockbuster medications he discovered was actually harming patients. And he really uh, came out and tried to work through the appropriate channels, which didn't work. And then he took it public. And as a result of that, I don't know how many of you remember that. I vividly remember that as it was happening in the news. But as a result of that, he his career was definitely impacted. And he just stood up uh, for what he believed in, for what was right for patients and for the public, and knew that there would be consequences to that. And he just, uh, dealt with those consequences. So again, on so many levels, he is just an amazing, amazing human being. And I think what he brings to the science and technology, digital health is such a depth of humanity. I talk a lot about in, in, in my book and in my writings and my talks, the idea that what we need to be about is, is not digitalizing healthcare, but actually humanizing healthcare. And I can think of no greater leader than Eric Topol that really, who really typifies that and has really spearheaded it and piloted it and led it in so many ways. So again, just uh, such, a, at least for me, such a meaningful dialogue. I'm so grateful for having the opportunity. I do want to take a moment again, as I always do, to 
thank all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. I think, as you heard, Dr. Topol, a lot of what he's been talking about, a lot of digital health and artificial intelligence, to his mind, is actually going to solve a lot of the burdens that providers are dealing with these days. I just want to, again, recognize you all. I want to truly appreciate you for what you do, recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. As always, I hope uh, this podcast provides you with some useful information and, and some encouragement and inspiration. This is Zev Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be well.